All right, well, kids, you are welcome to be released. So kids are going to head down to Children's Church with Miss Angela. See you, kids. Would one of you boys mind getting the lights on your way? Those, good job. Look at that team. Takes a village. Look at them. There they are. Good job. All right, so to start, just as a quick reminder, um, we do have welcome cards there in the seat pockets uh, in front of you, and, and that's a great spot for prayer requests as well. So if you've got any uh, prayer requests, you want to just jot those down on those cards. You can leave them in the tithe and offering boxes. Uh, also, on that same clipboard, there's Bible study notes. So if you're a note taker uh, and you want to follow along with us, there's an opportunity for you to do that. Uh, Last announcement is uh, Israel trip. We are planning a 2021 Israel trip, or at least we've been invited to go along with Parkland Chapel. So if there is anybody interested in going, uh, those dates are up there, June 2nd through the 11th. Uh, we'll be going along with Parkland Chapel. So they've already got about 25 people uh, that are signed up to go with them. And so if any of you are interested, uh, I will go with you if you're interested. So I'm not just going to send you with a bunch of strange Missourians because you can't trust those strange Missourians anyway. So I'll be there to protect you from them uh, and also to take a tour of the Holy Land. Uh, it is uh, quite the thing to pray about, so I want to encourage you just to, to commit that to prayer, um, but, a, but a wonderful life-changing experience too. And by the way, uh, speaking of announcements, I want to remind you guys, I do a horrible job of telling you about the information board out there, but the uh, dry erase board that's in the lobby has got information on all the different ministries we support. So if you're curious about uh, what we support, where we stand, or just updates, information about those ministries, we put that out there for you guys to be able to check that stuff out, uh, and as well as the websites. So we try to keep that updated too. Great spot to go for messages, or if you're just curious what in the world we're all about, that's a place you can check out, woodlawnchapel.org. So uh, that's what we have by way of announcements. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 7. So if you want to take out your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there is one located in the seat pocket somewhere near you. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. And what we have been looking at over these last several weeks is the Sermon on the Mount. So as we make our way, uh, some would say methodically, others would say meandering through the book of Matthew, uh, as we make our way through, we began in Matthew chapter 5 with this sermon. And uh, we've talked about this at the introduction when we first started the book, that the key word in the book of Matthew is the word fulfilled. And what we see is over and over again, uh, Jesus is fulfilling prophecies that were spoken about him that, that spoke of the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. So if he was to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is really the picture that Matthew is trying to paint, then he must be the fulfiller of prophecies. But then he also, what is notable in the book of Matthew is all of his different teachings. Five different major discourses that we see in the life of Jesus uh, that he's going to lay out for us as we study through this, but the first of which is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I mention that because in his ministry, what we looked at, one of the highlights of his ministry was that of teaching. He first was a teacher. He was a fulfiller of prophecies, but the way he communicated with people was as a teacher and a preacher, and then secondly, as a healer. The healing ministry wasn't the predominant part. It just proved who he actually was. And uh, as he begins this message, he's addressing a mixed multitude. He started in chapter 5 with just his disciples, those closest to him. He hadn't actually named the 12 disciples yet, but uh, these were people that had begun to follow him. And he begins the message like that, but then as Jesus spoke, because they, uh, people were curious in that land of this man that could heal people, uh, no doubt the, the group, the crowd, began to be mixed. It was a mixed multitude, but you could really put them into two different categories. And today, the message is really all about a tale of twos. You're going to see a, a repeat of this throughout chapter 7, which uh, hopefully, prayerfully, will make it all the way through the chapter today. But it's a lot of twos, and beginning with this, he's teaching to two different groups of people. For the unbeliever, he's trying to, with this message, drive them towards their need for a Savior. That, that they cannot in any way, shape, or form achieve perfection, which is God's expectation through the law. There's no way to do it. We all would, will admit that we've fallen short of perfection. Uh, some of us are far more than others. And, and so for the unbeliever, uh, we see that he's trying to direct them to this need of a Savior. They must have a Savior, and that is none other than the man teaching them, Jesus Christ. The second group is then for the believer. 
It's how, as a believer of Jesus, do I live with this newfound relationship in Christ, this new salvation? What way can I live? What, what, what things can I do, not do? How should I act in these situations? And so a lot of what Jesus is trying to do is to direct us as to how we are have to have our minds actually rebuilt from the inside out, a, a transformation. Uh, this message was written for both the believer then and the believer now. So as Jesus is teaching these people 2,000 years ago, it's just as applicable to us today in the here and now as it was even then. And then the last point as we look at this second group, I want to point out to you what a diverse group it is. I was thinking about this week and listening to some different things that, that the body of Christ is the most diverse uh, collection of people that has ever been collected as far as a religious affiliation. And anyway, when you look at people from India to Asia to Africa, you know, all the way through to, to South America, I mean, actually, South America, Europe, and Africa have more Christians than North America. Do you realize that? And so we are a very diverse group of people. Uh, but the funny thing is we all come together with one central thing in common, and that is a belief in this Jewish Messiah. And so it's this wonderful uh, family of God that actually gets assembled and gets to, to pull us all together. And then how are we to live with one another? And where we're going to uh, end today is with chapter 7, and it begins in judgment. So thankfully, none of us have a problem with judging in here. All right, None of you judged my sweater best as I got up here. Like, look, that's a nice sweater. Uh, okay, some of you might have judged the sweater. None of you, through your Thanksgiving feasts, probably judged anything at all. I mean, the realization is, as Americans, we love to judge, right? We love to judge uh, Thanksgiving Day floats. We love to judge the announcers about the floats, the announcers on the football game, the coaches on the football game. Why is this game even on? Why does Detroit play every single Thanksgiving? We love to judge these things. We're all wondering. But uh, Jesus has a lot of things to say about judgment. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not, that you may not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with a, the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. And so Jesus begins with maybe one of the most misquoted verses in all of the New Testament, uh, especially by the non-believing group, and that is, uh, do not judge. Right? We've all heard that. Don't judge me, man. All you want to do is judge me. Bible says don't judge, which is actually uh, truth. That's what the Bible says right here. We just read it. They're accurate in the sense of we are not called to judge for what Jesus mentions, the word in the Greek is krinos, that means to condemnation. Literally, it means to damn someone to hell. That's bad. We're not called into judging people for the purposes of condemnation, but instead for restoration. That these are the two points that are drastically different. That instead, what we're called to do is to judge for restoration. And if you remember back, the most famous verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that those who believe in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Well, remember that one. Do we remember, though, verse 17 that follows right after it? What God said is that he didn't send his son to the world so that it would be condemned, but so through him, through Jesus, it might be saved. That Jesus' ministry was actually one of restoration. He didn't come for the purpose of judging the world so that it might be smoked. And, and far too often, our, our reaction when we look at, at judging people, we are very much uh, the fry like a sausage kind of ministry. Like, if you don't change, you're going to burn in hell. Fry like a sausage. That's not at all what Jesus is trying to communicate. And to that point, one of the most famous quotes that we probably have heard out there, thrown out in church all the time, at least what I remember, was, love the sinner, hate the sin. Anybody ever heard that? You can head nod. So here's the problem with love the sinner and hate the sin uh, that I just realized a few years ago. Uh, that's that it's not biblical. <laughs> it's not actually in the Bible at all. And the reason for that is um, we don't actually have the capacity to hate sin properly. 
So when we see God referring to his hatred for sin, he hates sin and what it does to you and I. He hates the fact that it's going to stop us from being able to have access to heaven. He hates in a perfect way what sin does to us. But you and I, we struggle to hate sin, especially when it comes to to hating it in other people's lives. Because here's the thing. If you're a person struggling with a sin, a, a particular sin, uh, when you hear hate, uh, love the sinner, hate the sin, you know what that feels like? Hate. <laughs> it just feels like hate. You don't actually think, well, I, they probably love me on some level. No, it just feels like hate. Because we don't have the ability, at, when we're stuck, especially in a sinful spot, uh, my sin is so much a part of me, it feels like you just hate me. Which is why we're actually called to love one another, not at all to hate. The only way that we can properly address sin, the way God actually addresses sin, is is he divides it, right? The word of God is the thing that divides the soul from the spirit. And so without God's word, there's no way to accurately even assess our sin nature. So let's just go go through a few problems with judgment when we look at it. Uh, Judgment, for one, is limited. I don't know the whole story. So whenever we look into a situation, the problem is uh, we are uh, not God, and so therefore we don't have the complete picture of things. So any judgment I make is always coming from a limited and skewed perspective. And so as I look at my neighbor, and they've got a new Cadillac Escalade in their driveway, what's our first thought? Well, wonder what they did. They must have some kind of debt over there. There's no way they can afford that vehicle. When what we don't realize is it's very possible that uh, grandma died from the COVIDs and she left them a whole pile of money. And they decided that the Cadillac's a very nice vehicle, high safety ratings, and this is the best use of our funds. And so I don't know the whole story, therefore my judgment is always limited. Secondly, judgment is a boomerang. Now this is a truth that we see uh, even in the Bible that, that when we throw judgment out there that oftentimes it has this way of coming back and whacking us right between the eyes. And so in the Old Testament, there's a beautiful book of Esther. If you've ever spent time looking uh, at this story, it's an amazing one. And in the book of Esther, there's an evil guy. He's a Gentile named Haman. Now Haman is uh, pretty high up in the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, second in command to King Artaxerxes. But Haman also hates the Jewish people. He hates one guy in particular, a guy named Mordecai. Because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him and worship him, Haman had a bit of a pride problem. And so he so hates Mordecai that he builds a gallow in his backyard 70 feet tall to hang, to hang Mordecai from. The only little problem with that is uh, Mordecai's niece was Queen Esther. And so his whole plan was foiled because he didn't realize who was married to the king. And what we find is when this whole plot is unveiled, what happens to Haman is he is hung on his own gallows. The very gallow he built to hang Mordecai, he is hung from himself. And that's what happens with judgment, is it comes back upon us like a boomerang. Lastly, the issue with judgment is what happens is there's hypocrisy in judgment. That we we teeter so much on this hypocrisy. And, and the story I would point you to is in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. And in this spot, uh, King David has uh, perhaps his biggest uh, fumble of his entire life. In chapter 11, it begins with uh, all the kings go out to war in the springtime except for David. He stays back and doesn't go out to the battle. I don't realize how battle seasons are, but apparently in the Old Testament, uh, battle season was like football season. Spring comes around, time to go fight people. And, you know, it got cold. They're like, you know, it's too cold to kill each other. Let's go back home. We'll come back out when it's warmer, and then we'll start this up again. And so the spring battle season shows up, and it's time for the kings to go out to war, but David stays back. He's probably in his early 50s at this point, and he has lived a hard life. It's important to remember about uh, King David is that we think of him as a little boy that slayed a giant. And the reality is, this guy was one bad dude. I mean, he's cutting the heads off of giants. He's killing Philistines left and right. He is one tough animal. But he decided, you know what, this year I'm just going to take a year off. Which, uh, by the way, is a side note. Anytime we take time off of what God called us to do, we are always very susceptible to sin. 
And so what happens for David is, uh, as he's uh, taking a season off, he looks out over the rooftops and he sees a beautiful woman. She's naked there. She's taking a bath. And he has a desire for her. And so he calls Bathsheba to be brought to him. They have an adulterous affair relationship. Uh, she ends up being pregnant because of this relationship. And so in order to cover it all up, what David does, instead of confessing, he takes uh, her, wife, her husband, Uriah, and puts him on the front lines of the battle so that he'd be killed. And then he, David could look like the hero. I'm going to take this poor man's uh, widowed wife, and I'm going to bring her into my harem and love her like my own. The whole time, though, it was all this massive cover-up to cover up his own infidelity. And so, this is the story when we arrive in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David, it's one year later, he thinks the whole thing has gone completely unnoticed until his number one prophet, a guy named Nathan, shows up at his house. And Nathan proceeds there in chapter 12 to tell him a little story. He tells him about a rich man who's got many, uh, much wealth, and he's got uh, these large flocks and all these animals, and, but he's a neighbor to a poor man. And the poor man that is his neighbor, he's got one little ewe lamb, and this little lamb is such a prized possession that they even bring the lamb into their house. It's like their pet, their kids name it Lammy. He eats with the, the family. Uh, it's this wonderful relationship they have with this beautiful little pet of theirs. Now, the rich man has a traveler that comes in, a friend that shows up from out of town. And what you do in those days is when a friend comes in, you, you cook him a meal, right? So he goes to prepare him a meal, but rather than taking one of his flock, he goes to his neighbor, steals his little lamb, kills it, and serves it to this guy for dinner. It's this horrible story. And so David's reaction to this story that Nathan tells him is, uh, chapter 12, verse 5, David's anger was so greatly aroused against this man that he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David was enraged. And then we look at the next line that Nathan, the prophet, said. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man! Whoo, can you imagine being Nathan? And you, I mean, I just told you, David uh, killed giants. Like, this guy was tough. He's covered this whole thing up, and then Nathan says, you're the man. Wow, there's some unbelievable hypocrisy that takes place when we begin to judge. The, the interesting part about this story is, do you know the law of Moses actually says that in this situation, when you steal another man's uh, sheep, you are to pay back fourfold. It never once mentions capital judgment, capital punishment. You, you weren't supposed to die for that. But what was David's reaction? This man shall pay back fourfold, and he's going to die. The reason is, my sin on somebody else always looks way worse, doesn't it? Whenever I see my sin on another person, I'm like, boy, what a jerk. And yet, it comes right back to old number one. And so that's the dangers when we look at judgment. So if we're not called to judge, let's continue on with how we are to handle actually interacting in one another's uh, lives. Because one of the questions comes up is, didn't uh, Jesus judge, right? I mean, we look at this, but I don't want to be hypocritical. So how then should we handle things? Uh, for that, uh, let's continue in verses 5 and 6. Jesus responds by saying, Hypocrite. Remember that word hypocrite calls them back to the Greek uh, actors, the hypocrites, the, the actor, the same actor would play the good guy in a Greek play and the bad guy. So he's saying you're being two-faced. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not, verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. So let's start with verse 5. Jesus is telling them to first remove the plank out of their own eye. So to just stick with the story on David for a second, if you turn to Psalm 51, this is a beautiful psalm, especially if you're in a spot where God has, 
has rebuilt, restored things in your life. You've, you've had some sin issues and you've confessed them. This is David in Psalm 51 pouring out his heart after the whole Bathsheba incident has been uncovered. And so we get a, a firsthand look into how he was feeling in this incident, but we don't have time for the whole chapter. I'll just go to verse 10. This is what David says in Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. There's restoration, what judgment is always meant to bring about. And uphold me by your generous spirit. And then, verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. And so, if we are to uh, deal with sin in other people's lives, what David is saying is, first, deal with me. First, deal with me, restore me from the inside out. And it's then and only then that I can speak into someone else's life, which is precisely what Jesus is saying. First, deal with the plank in your own eye. And so this, uh, this points us back to the plank and the speck. Do you notice that the plank and the speck are actually the same substance? They're both wood, Right? And so what he's saying is you've got an issue. It's a similar issue or the same issue that your brother has. And I love the way Jesus paints this picture. Uh, but the issue in your life, it's a plank. It's a two-by-four hanging out your eye. And you're worried about this little speck in your brother's eye. So first deal with that, and then you can move on and see clearly the speck that is in your brother's eye. But the problem is when we don't deal with the sin in our own life first, we can't see clearly to address anyone else. We, we have clouded vision. Now, here's the good news, that once you have dealt with the plank in your own eye, you can see clearly to deal with your brother's speck. And if you're out there as a brother, and you're one dealing with a speck, here's the good news for you. Uh, you often think it's a plank, but what you don't realize is the person you're going to approach to talk about it uh, sees it as just a speck. What I mean by that is I have had numerous situations where men have wanted to come and sit down and talk to me, and they've been so nervous because they've got a, a, an issue going on, and what they don't realize is that I've already dealt with some planks. <laughs> so when they say, well, I got something that's really bad, I need to talk to you about it, by the time they get done telling me, I'm like, dude, that ain't half as bad as most of the stuff I had going on, right? Because I dealt with some planks. These are just specks. And so often, Satan wants to convince us that our issues are too big, they're too unique, there's no way anybody else could deal with this thing, and the reality of it is, is that we're all dealing with a plank or a speck on one way or another. So the first thing to do when it comes to judgment is deal with the plank in my own eye. The second thing to do is what we see there in verse 6, is to have discernment. Now, this is a, a difficult verse for us lots of times when we look at it. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. And so, what we find is we have to exercise discernment when it comes to whose people's lives we're willing to get involved with. Because we are not made to interact in every single situation. I'm uniquely created to deal with certain people at certain times in certain different ways. And the unfortunate part is we get involved in the church and we want to go around and help everybody, but the reality of it is uh, there are some folks that just do not want to be helped. They don't. And my pastor years ago said to me, and this is profound, he said, you can only minister to the degree that someone will let you minister to them. You can only minister to them so far because uh, there are lots of times where you're actually dealing with a pig. And with a pig, they will eat up every word you have to say. They will eat up all your time. What we actually call them is three-headed time suckers. That's what they are. They will eat and gobble up all of your time and all of your energy, and then look what they'll do. They will turn and trample you and tear you into pieces. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is that what we are basically trying to do is lead blind people in the dark. I love that picture. Like as we, as we try to direct and help people out, we are trying to help blind people uh, through the dark. And, and here's what we're really trying to point them to. It was a key verse last week, Matthew 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things will be added. 
And lots of times we try to deal with the, all the other things and we forget to seek first peace. That if a person is not willing to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then the only thing we're really doing is addressing a symptom, never the root cause. And so what Jesus is trying to encourage us to do is get to the root cause, practice discernment whenever it comes to speaking into people's lives. And so the question is then, how do I gain discernment? Great advice there, Mr. Pastor, but how in the world do I get discernment? Thank you for asking. Let's continue on to verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, also do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so, when we had this question come about, how do I gain discernment? This is really brilliant. I thought of this all on my own. Uh, you ask. There you go. You ask. You ask God for discernment. And, and the key there in the Greek, it's actually an open-ended uh, phrase. It's keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. It's not a one-time ask. Well, God didn't give it to me. I guess I'm done. No, it's a continual process. Now, some of you may wonder, if God wants me to have it, why didn't he just give it to me? And the reality of it is, he's commanding us to ask because he knows that we won't ask. We are prone to be prideful little people that will not ask for help. We're like baby Madeline. Every time she has to go wash her hands, do you need help, baby Madeline? No, I got it on my own. And then after she has water all over the entire bathroom, do you need help now? I need some help. Usually needs help cleaning up the mess. That's what happens. That's how we are with God. I don't want to ask until I make a big mess. And then, now all of a sudden, I need some help. Uh, he also encourages us to keep asking so that way we build up endurance and persistence in this relationship. I mentioned it a few weeks ago when we talked about prayer, but here's the reality. When, when it comes to praying about something, if I'm not determined enough to pray about something for seven straight days, uh, the truth is I probably didn't want it that bad. I, I, didn't, I didn't have enough determination to really want the thing, and maybe if God gave it to me, I might not have enough determination to actually handle the thing that he was willing to give me. And so the Lord wants this continual relationship. He wants us to keep asking. And, and, and James, when it re refers to wisdom, has this to say, James chapter 1, verse 5, uh, wisdom is something we also need in this, in this uh, journey of life. He says in James chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give to, uh, excuse me, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, it will be given to him. So when it comes to discernment, wisdom, we need all this in our lives to conduct ourselves. The key to this is ask. Keep asking. And here's the reality, what he goes on to paint this picture of in verse 9, what man among you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone. Jesus is being intentionally dramatic about this, trying to point, point out the fact that none of you as parents would ever give your kid intentionally something bad, except for lemons. We would give a baby a lemon. Why? Because it's funny. But Jesus is saying God wouldn't give us any lemons. But if you've ever given a baby a lemon, it's hilarious. They make the little... Isn't it so funny? But, but Jesus is saying God is not you. You're evil. So you're all evil for doing that. Uh, I've done it too. So I'm evil too. But, but, but it is funny. But the point is, he, he wouldn't do this to us because he loves us. Because he's our Father in heaven. So if for us, if our kids are hungry, we're of course going to feed them. If they're looking for an egg, we're not going to give them a snake and trick them. And, and I, I bring you to Psalms 84. So I was thinking about this because a lot of this speaks to what our relationship with God actually is. In Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold for those who walk uprightly. Like This is what God desires in your life, that no good thing is he wanting to withhold from you. 
That's key. He's not willing to withhold any good thing, which means bad things he is willing to withhold. And for lots of us, we're careful about how we pray because we're afraid we don't completely trust God that he's going to give me a good thing. And so lots of times we'll pray in this manner, or you've even heard this in church, don't pray for patience. The Lord might give it to you. Be careful about what you pray. He might just give it to you. That's completely contradictory to God's character. Patience is actually a fruit of the Spirit, which, by the way, you want those. So, I mean, you think of the fruits of the Spirit as Paul lays them out there. Love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are all good things. So why then do we tell people don't pray for patience? It's because we don't really trust God fully. We are afraid that at some point he's waiting around the corner that if I pray for the wrong thing, he's going to jump out and go, Ha-ha! Gotcha! I knew you were going to pray for that. Now I got you in this whole mess. That's not at all how he is. Now, I share all that, and I'm being intentionally dramatic because it really affects our relationship. And if you can grasp this, there's tremendous freedom when it comes to our prayer life. And what I mean is when you know that God is only going to give you good gifts, that he is only looking out for your best interest, that means that you have freedom to pray for things and let him direct. Let him decide what he's going to give. So I can just literally go in and let it rip tater chip with whatever's on my mind. Lord, I'm just going to lay it out there for you. Being uh, direct in my prayers, not directive. Understand there's a difference. What a directive prayer looks like is, uh, Lord, I'm going to take this job. Now bless it. Lord, I'm going to go ahead and buy that thing. Bless it, Lord. No, no. It's laying it out there before him and going, Lord, I don't know what to do. I've got these two options here. I'm struggling with this decision. What would you have me do? Make it clear to me, please. And pray for that thing consistently. And you'll be amazed at how he'll shut a door over here. He'll open a door over there. And this is always the case. And and I put a quote up here for you from C.H. Spurgeon on the screen that you probably can't read. But that's okay. I can't read it either. Uh, But what he's saying is uh, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's the difference between knowing right and almost right. That's really what we're looking to do when we pray about things. So when, we, when it comes to our prayer life, I'm not going to ask God for things that are bad. He's, he's not going to give me a bad thing. And if I do mess up and ask him for something bad, he's too good to actually give me the thing that was bad in the first place. So if you see your neighbor lady bathing on her roof and you pray that she would come over, uh, he's going to be like, no, that's bad, right? And, and secondly, ladies, bathe inside, for goodness sake. Stop bathing on the roof. What in the world? I was back to Bathsheba. So there's freedom in our prayer life. That's the point. When, it, when we know our dad is always good all the time, there's freedom in that. Continuing on then in verse 12, this is what's known as the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so we've all heard about the golden rule. And and in fact, the question here is, how do we live without hypocrisy? Well, we live it by by living a golden life. And and notice with me that Jesus points this in the positive direction. Uh, This actually shows up in other uh, religions. Uh, Buddhism, uh, for one, uh, Buddha, they claim, said this. But what he actually says is, don't do something bad to someone so they don't do something bad to you. That's different than the way Jesus worded. He says, do something good so that your uh, neighbor will do something good to you. It's directed in a positive way, and it calls us into action. And it lines up with when uh, Jesus is asked in Matthew 22 by a a young lawyer, what is the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, this is what he, he, he asks. This young man comes up and says, what's the greatest commandment? And instead of giving him one, again, our message today is all about twos. He gives him two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And on this hang all the law and all the prophets. So Jesus took in one fail swoop all 613 commandments that are in the Old Testament, and he says, boil it down to this. Love God, love people. Now, the loving God part, we can kind of get our arms wrapped around, but what's the thing we struggle with? 
Loving people. People are hard to love. Not me. I'm incredibly lovable. That's what my whole family agrees. I am so lovable. But other people are hard to love. And, and, and so the most forgotten word in the entire verse 12 is this. Uh, therefore. Therefore, we have to remember, we talked about it last week. What is it therefore? It's what we ask ourselves. It always points us to the previous passage. And what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about asking. Asking God for help in these situations because the reality of it is that without his help, we cannot love people in this way. It's impossible. There's always a, a hitch in it somewhere. That loving in this way is a supernatural way that we can be connected with one another. That anything else, it's tainted in some way. It's tainted love. Eh, eh. Tainted love. Sorry, no 80s fans at all out there. Okay, Pat is. Thank you, Pat, for raising your hand. All right, it's tainted in some way, shape, or form. And so it's only through Jesus, only by asking for his help, can we achieve this. Now, continuing on, he's going to then uh, paint pictures for us. He's going to give us stories to help us understand. He's going to say, enter, in verse 13, by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who will go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, verse 21, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does will of, of my Father in heaven, who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice, you who practice lawlessness. I love the old King James, you workers of iniquity. It just sounds powerful, doesn't it? Depart from me, you practicers of lawlessness. And so, if you struggle with this idea of judgment, what Jesus is sharing is that we are called to be fruit inspectors. That all of us are called out there to actually inspect fruit because by the fruit we can tell what's really going on with the tree. Now, why are we called to be fruit inspectors? Uh, one, uh, in order to lead people. That if I'm going to lead you to the narrow gate, the gate that is difficult to find, it's difficult to, to go, then I have to be able to look into your life and really assess things. Not, again, for the purpose of condemnation, but to see you into eternal life. And when you think about these two different gates, they're really like funnels, right? So, so the funnel works like this. Uh, the wide gate is wide at the top, and everything funnels down to the end. It can only be accessed through a gate. Jesus says, I am the gate. But for those who find the narrow gate, the funnel works the opposite direction. In this life, we get the opportunity to start at the gate, and then life opens up. It leads to eternal life. And so, as we are able to inspect into people's lives, we can actually help them gain access to the narrow gate. We can direct them in that way. Secondly, as Jesus is sharing this series of stories, what he's encouraging them to do is to identify false prophets. So, as a fruit inspector, I can identify false prophets. He's specifically talking about preachers and teachers and those who proclaim to be the religious elite. Now, is it warm in here? No, sorry. This is what he's encouraging them to do because the reality is they look like sheep. If they look like wolves, it'd be easy to spot them. Like, hey, there's a wolf, look out. But instead, they all look like sheep. So how then can I identify a true prophet from a false prophet? I have to inspect the fruit. Now, for a long time, I thought the fruit was what they did, what they said. But read what Jesus says. He says uh, that they would on that day say to them, 
Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do great works in your name? Which tells you that even the false prophets could prophesy, they could do great works, they could cast out demons. Think about Judas Iscariot, right? The, the one who betrayed Jesus. Do you realize here in just a couple weeks when we get into the missionary discourse, Judas is going to be sent out with all the other disciples, which means Judas cast out demons. Judas performed many tremendous works, and yet what did Jesus say of him? He was the devil. He was the son of perdition. So how then can we know what this truly is? We'll get to that in just a second. But the question is, at least for me, is why does God allow false prophets? Why does he allow it? He knows they're false. Well, for two reasons. One, because people are still blessed even through false prophets. Do you realize that? That for those that were healed by Judas when he was sent out, those who had demons released from their lives, uh, guess what? They were still healed. They were still incredibly blessed by that. And so when we think about uh, false prophets throughout time, and there have been all kinds of fallen preachers all over the place and these great religious leaders, do you realize that even in their ministries, even with all their flaws, even with all their issues, people were saved? There were genuine, real salvation moments that took place. Which speaks to the next point, why does God allow it? Because he is showing that he's sovereign. That it only God could actually take these people with completely jacked up motives, messed up, tore up from the floor up people, and actually lead folks to salvation. Actually see his will accomplished. And that's the beautiful part about this, is that his will is going to be done. People are going to fall away. Churches are going to open and close the doors. I've had many people share with me about this building. It's been used for this ministry and that ministry. And lots of times they're saying it in a way it's like, boy, I hope you guys make it because the last one didn't do good or the one before that struggled or this one struggled. And you know what I think of when they share that? I've also had people share with me that they've been saved in this building, that they've been led to Jesus in this very place. And so for all these bad things, you are not going to stop the will of God from being done. Now, back to how we know, though, false prophets. Verse 23 is the key with how you know when Jesus says, you who practice lawlessness. So when you look into their lives, the fruit is that they actually do not adhere to the word of God. And you have to look close sometimes. In the case of Judas, you would have had to have looked close into his life. But if you remember the scene where Mary comes and she breaks the alabaster box, she anoints Jesus with this expensive perfume. In today's dollars, it would have been around $30,000 worth of perfume that she dumped out over the top of Jesus and anointed him from head to toe for his burial and to anoint him king. This beautiful moment. And yet, what did some of the disciples say? Well, that was worth a lot of money. You see how she just wasted that on Jesus? And the one leading the charge who was saying that above all else because he was the treasurer was Judas. Practicing lawlessness, stopping people from pouring out their lives onto the life of Jesus. And so if you look closely into people's lives, this is what you'll see uh, take place. All right, continuing on then with our last set of verses. Verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came up and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. And so with our last series of twos, we see we had two gates, right? The narrow and the wide gate. We had two trees, the good tree, the bad tree. And now here we are, we have two houses. And we also have two eternities, what we started off with, right? That there is a choice to be made. No one ever accidentally ends up in hell. It's always a choice. We have a choice to make. 
And so as Jesus is sharing this about these two different houses, what you find in the story, and you probably heard this taught several times, probably better than what I'm going to teach it, but, but when you look at the houses, there is no discernible difference between the house. They look to be uh, the same siding, the same shutters, same front door, right? The same everything. And, and I've heard it said that the only difference is the foundation. And yet, from what I read, uh, the foundation actually even appears to be the same. The basement is even the same. The difference is the soil that they were built on. That for each house, they look from the outside identical. And the only way to tell what kind of soil they were built on is when a storm comes. So the storm comes in, it blows, and that's the thing that tests the house. And Jesus shares with us what Bible math looks like. He says, here's the deal in verse 24. Hearing plus doing equals blessing. It equals surviving the storm. But that means the opposite is true in verse 26 when he says, hearing minus doing equals utter failure, complete collapse of a home. That these two houses that look so good from the outside, that grew up in the same little church, that time and time again heard the same messages, because of a lack of application, when the storm hit, it showed what kind of soil they were really built on. And I have uh, had the unfortunate uh, uh, responsibility or spot where I've been able to see what houses that look so good at church every single week and, and, and listening to what the pastor had to say. And yet, when the storm hit for these folks, you would have thought they never even knew Jesus. I mean, it's crying out, it's lashing out, it's all these things. And, and yet, the opposite I've seen happen where folks that you wonder, like, well, I don't know if they even know Jesus. <laughs> Some of the things, and you wonder, and then you, you see different scenarios in their life play out, and then a storm comes, and they are rock solid. I mean, they are locked in. Jesus has got this. And I've just been blown away in people's lives getting to see this firsthand, that the storm blows, but the only way to really know what the soil looks like is when the storm comes. And here's the news. It's either good or bad, depending on where you're at. Uh, the storm always comes. With storms, you're either going into a storm, you're either in the middle of a storm, or you're coming out of a storm. But there is always a storm. It's some spot on the cycle. You're either going into it, in the middle of it, or coming out of it. But each time as it comes, it allows us to dig in and further set our feet on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Time and time again, we get to just settle in and sink in. And we get to know what our soil conditions looking like. There's some that are on kind of the half rock, half muddy stuff. Like, whoa, got to have to prop up that into the house again. <laughs> that part fell off. And that's okay. And, and here's the thing that Jesus is going to, that we're going to end with in verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so Jesus, teaching this message that we've taken several weeks to cover, he taught it all at one time. But when they heard his words, they looked and they go, man, he taught as though somebody had authority, not as a scribe. So the scribes and the Pharisees, they would teach based on the way they had been taught. And so they would sound very much like like parakeets. They would repeat the message. They would repeat the things that they heard. And yet for Jesus, he was completely an original. He taught as though one that had original thoughts and ideas and in simple ways that people could understand. He broke down the law, right? These things that folks were told, you're too dumb to understand this. Jesus is breaking it down. You're not too dumb. I'm going to help you understand it. And he did so with authority that was given to him by the Father. And the question is for you today, do you realize that you have also been given authority? You've been given authority by the Father through different circles that you have in your life. It, it looks way different than my circle does. You've got your own spot. You've got your own interactions. And yet you still have authority given to you by God to speak into people's lives, not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of restoration, 
to actually lead people to the narrow gate. It's an awesome responsibility. And, and, and here's the last thing I want to leave you with, that as Jesus taught, what he lacked was pretense, and what he had was authenticity. He lacked complete pretense. He, he didn't have preconceived notions. People were brought to him in sinful situations, and he was able to speak directly into their lives without all this other you know, background stuff that we bring in. He lacked it all. John chapter 8 is probably the most famous example of that. The, the woman who was caught literally in the act of adultery. She was caught in the act. I'll let you paint your own picture of that. But you can imagine the scene. He's teaching in the temple, and this woman is thrown into the middle of his, him teaching who had caught in the very act. Notice, by the way, they didn't throw two people there, just a woman. Kind of needed a man there, but... Nevertheless, they throw her into the midst of Jesus and they say, now the law of Moses says that this woman is to be stoned to death. What do you say? And Jesus says very plainly, whoever in, in, among you is without sin, let him pick up the first stone. And then he goes back to doodling on the ground. What he doodled, we don't know. But he went back to drawing on the ground. And slowly from the oldest to the youngest, they all disappeared. Until Jesus looks up and he sees everybody gone. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, it's just you and me. And if you stop there, you don't get to the restoration piece. I've had people share this story with me when they've been living in sin in their life and they've been struggling. They've said, they've said, well, it feels like the church is condemning me. But according to John 8, it doesn't look like there's any condemnation in this spot. And this is true. He's not looking to condemn. He's looking to restore. But if you stop the chapter there, you miss the point. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, the point of restoration is to actually stop the sin pattern. What Jesus is hoping to have stopped in our life, it doesn't change any of what's said in the book. He's hoping, though, for us to be restored and rebuilt. It's a beautiful thing. And that's what he told this woman in this spot. Go and sin no more. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to cut out all the junk, all the pretense. I'm going to be real with you, but now go cut it out. <laughs> go, be, go, go be restored. And so that's the spot that you and I are in. We get an opportunity to lack pretense, to be authentic with people. And it's dangerous because when we're authentic, we're also vulnerable. Now, there's great power there, but there's also, uh, it's scary. And that's really the, the prayer that I have for our little church that we will be a place where people can come in and know that we are going to lack pretense. Come as you are, don't leave as you were. And we will grow into that. And believe me, we will grow. Maybe not in numbers. I don't know about that. That's a Jesus thing. He's got to work that out. But we will grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. We'll grow together. And we'll figure this thing out together. But we're not going to be a place that rejects anyone. We're going to be a place that lacks pretense, but we're also going to be authentic. We're going to say what's in the Word of God week in and week out. That's the thing that's going to change lives for you and for those around you that God has given you authority to speak into their lives. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to cover what is a, a dicey topic of judgment. And Lord, I just want to thank you personally for not judging to the point of condemnation. Because if you did, none of us would be here right now. <laughs> we would have all been smoked. So Lord, far too often your long-suffering is mistaken for your acceptance. And you are not by any means accepting sin in my life or anyone else's. But you are such a good dad, you're patient. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for giving us time to get it right. Thank you that you give us a chance to hear and do. Because at least for me, there's been far too many seasons where I have heard and I have not done and I have witnessed my house fall flat. But boy, you're a master rebuilder. Thank you, Lord, for building us back up, for restoring us, for not preaching a message of hate and anger, but instead one of love and patience. We praise you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand so sing our closing song?
says amen amen well thank you guys for joining us hope you had a wonderful thanksgiving if you didn't get enough to eat there are donuts out in the lobby courtesy of revival city donuts and miss marshall and thankfully based on this message there's no judgment nobody's going to pass judgment upon you for eating a donut so go enjoy if you need prayer at all i'll be up front god bless you guys Troll. 